Hello and welcome to Deep North. My name is Eric Pomerinke and I'm joined today in the studio with Iceland Review staff writer Frank Walter Sands. And today we are going to be hearing about the remarkable life of Jón Olafsson, India traveler. On a bright May morning in 1679, an 85-year-old widower passed away in his sleep after a long illness. He had lived a full life and was loved and highly respected, not least for his wisdom and generosity of spirit. He was said to have been well satisfied with his long life and fortuitous relationship to his God, which had preserved him through countless struggles. In recent years, as the burden of age weighed upon him evermore, Jón Olofsson of Eredal Farm in Alftafjörður in the West Fjords had been forced to give up his daily chores as a farmer and decided to dedicate his remaining time educating people in reading and writing, as he had done part-time for decades. Since his childhood, this man had a natural talent for storytelling and a love of books. Countless local men and women had been taught by him not only to read, but were instructed in practicing proper manners and self-discipline as well. Throughout most of his long life, Jón Olofsson was known as more than a faithful Christian, farmer, and beloved teacher. In a time before television, radio, or even printing presses, when even dancing was illegal, entertainment-deprived 17th-century Icelanders craved a well-told story. He was a storyteller without equal, best known as the renowned Icelandic Indiafari. He was Jón Olofsson, the India Traveler. Although the impoverished Icelandic society had been benefiting from growing international trade, better ships and fishing techniques, the early 1600s were aptly dubbed, quote, the torture years, unquote. Possibly the saddest and most severe period of Icelandic history, it was an abnormally cold period fraught with tragedy. In 1603, Iceland was surrounded by ocean ice, which, in addition to causing acute hunger, resulted in the shocking loss of 13 ships and the drowning of 80 men. Various diseases such as tuberculosis, smallpox, and the plague, exacerbated by poor nutrition, killed thousands annually, limiting Iceland's population to never reach beyond some 50,000 souls. An average adult could expect to live between just 40 to 45 years, and the infant mortality rate was atrociously high. Jón's parents, for example, lost 11 of their 14 children. When he was just seven years old, Jón's father died of dysentery. Widespread hunger and starvation forced the poorest Icelanders to resort to nourishing themselves with shoe leather and discarded animal bones. In 1627, Algerian pirates from the Barbary coast raided a mostly defenseless Iceland twice in one year, abducting hundreds of Icelanders whose humiliating fate was to be sold as slaves on the market in North Africa. Much of the economic woe that Iceland suffered at this time was exacerbated by a strict monopoly on all trade that kept prices high and supplies of often poor quality. As a royal colony, Iceland was tightly controlled by the Danish-Norwegian crown. The Danish-Icelandic trade monopoly was enacted in 1602 in order to support Danish merchants and trade in Iceland against competing nations, increasing the wealth and power of the King of Denmark much to the detriment of their Icelandic colony. 
Nevertheless, a lack of any Coast Guard and willing or desperate locals who could work and trade profitably with foreigners incentivized illicit trading. Whaling by Spanish fleets was a labor-intensive industry that engaged hundreds of Icelanders and introduced previously unknown luxuries, such as tobacco, iron tools, and wheat flour. It was no secret that Iceland's prime fishing grounds were filled to the brim with Spanish, Portuguese, Dutch, German, and English ships exploiting this loophole. When these indiscretions were reported in 1615, local Icelandic authorities in the West Fjords resolved to take matters into their own hands. After a violent storm destroyed three Spanish Basque whaling ships, 31 of the stranded sailors were hunted down, massacred, and mutilated by Icelandic sheriff Ari E. Ogri's hastily assembled band of conscripts who had been threatened with onerous fines if they refused to help kill the foreign devils. In the early summer of 1615, a 50-ton English freight ship that had been blown off course in a storm ended up in the vicinity of Jón's homestead near Isafjörður, where he and his mother and two siblings had been eking out a meager existence. At the age of 22, Jón Olofsson decided he wanted to see the world beyond Iceland's rocky shores. He had two distinct sides to his character. On the one hand, his Christian faith was very strong, while he was unusually fearless and adventurous. In a small boat, Jón and a few of his companions rowed over to the English vessel. After chatting amiably, if somewhat awkwardly, with some of the English crew, Jón asked to speak with the ship's captain. Despite the language differences, Jón managed to negotiate passage for himself to England, trading a substantial quantity of homespun wool for the journey. They set sail on the 23rd of June, after a tearful goodbye to his mother, who was well aware of Jón's dreams of traveling far and wide. Jón had brought more than 200 kilos of dried cod and a few barrels of fish oil, with which he hoped to finance his adventure, most of which was lost overboard in one of the frequent storms the ship encountered. During the seven-week voyage, Jón befriended most of the crew, who passed the time at sea, wrestling for sport, playing backgammon, and after the captain would retire each evening, drinking ale and smoking tobacco, which had yet to be introduced to Icelanders. This friendly interaction enabled Jón to acquire English very quickly and soon quite fluently, so well, in fact, that upon his arrival he was proud to be taken for a native speaker. Disembarking on August 11th in Harwich, near the coastal city of Ipswich, Jón was surprised to see how many coal ships were constantly coming and going. At this time, England was rapidly expanding coal production, which would become the dynamo that powered the Industrial Revolution and would make Britain a global superpower. James I was king, and England was thriving economically and blossoming culturally. Once in England, Jón was quick to form friendly relations with the locals, and was twice offered bountiful employment, which he kindly refused, explaining that Iceland's colonial capital of Copenhagen in the Danish kingdom was his ultimate goal. Before he could find a way to Denmark, Jón visited Shakespearean London, and was astounded by its beauty and sheer size. The dozens of bridges and hundreds of churches, including the imposing bulk of old St. Paul's Cathedral, 
whose spires towered over the great city at nearly 150 meters height. While the architecture and art from paintings to statues profoundly impressed him, best of all was the music. Pounding drums, pipe organs, and soaring trumpets were frequently heard and utterly captivated Yon, who was coming from a country almost entirely devoid of musical instruments. Yon no sooner arrived in London than he ran into Danish sailors who were serving on a royal warship bringing horses as a gift from Danish King Christian IV to English king and brother-in-law James I. Yon had no trouble winning them over and was generously offered passage aboard the Danish warship, finally arriving in Copenhagen a few days later, months after his departure from Iceland. Jón was fascinated by 17th-century Copenhagen's castles, towers, fortresses, churches, and trading halls. Elegant stone buildings with actual glass windows were everywhere, a novelty to Jón, who had spent his life in dark, dank, earthen-floored dwellings built mostly of turf and raw stone. Sailors and soldiers, merchants and craftsmen, musicians and beggars crowded the streets and marketplaces. From Jón's Icelandic perspective, the Danish horses were enormous in comparison to Iceland's squatter breed. Everything in the vibrant capital was new and interesting, but the flavors and aromas of the many varieties of food surprised him the most, including pork sausages, baked bread, and sweet pastries, all of which were virtually unknown in his native land. In Copenhagen's countless alehouses, taverns, and pubs, Spirits, wines, and ales of every description were consumed by a burgeoning population. Yon had lost much of his dried cod and fish oil during the long journey and badly needed money. An acquaintance fortunately found a job for Yon, combing horses at the king's stable. After a few weeks of getting to know Copenhagen and improving his Danish, Yon was convinced by a friend to join King Christian IV's army as an artilleryman. Travel, Yon's true passion, was a fundamental part of serving in the king's army. Yon had found his path. Pledging his loyalty to the king in front of officials and recruits was called, quote, taking bread and salt, unquote. Recruits would hold up three fingers on their right hand and swear to serve the king. The uniforms were brightly colored and included wide breeches over tights, a fluffy shirt under an ornate tunic, and long feathers in a brimmed hat. Yon was incredibly successful in forging friendly and respectful relationships with fellow soldiers and all manner of people, including many of his superior officers and even the King of Denmark himself. One day, while serving as a gunner aboard a Danish Royal Navy vessel, Patrolling the seas around Denmark, Jón was ordered to present himself to the king, who was on board at the time. King Christian IV was ever curious about his far-away colonial possessions and was surprised to learn that there were Icelanders serving on this very ship. Jón had a gentle, friendly manner. He recognized the importance of keeping calm in the face of danger and was well-mannered toward all. When he met the king, rather than bowing and scraping, Jón broke with convention and looked the Danish monarch straight in his eyes, addressing him with due respect, but speaking as an equal, 
which evidently charmed the king. Yon was asked about his schooling and background and was told by the king that he had the look of an educated man. The fact that Yon could read and write was praised, as literacy was not common at the time. Then the king asked how exactly he managed the long and perilous journey from Iceland to Denmark. Yon decided to tell the king the flat truth, that he had bartered with an English captain for passage to Europe, even though it was illegal because of the Danish trade monopoly. The king asked Yon why Icelanders would have anything to do with the English or any non-Danish ship for that matter, to which Yon replied that trading with foreigners was a matter of survival and that the Danish merchants were expensive, too often unavailable or simply absent. Yon's honesty and sincerity deeply impressed the king, who thanked him and gave him large quantities of ale as a reward. However good Yon's relations were with most of his superior officers, he was treated no better than an ordinary gunner whenever he misbehaved. For the infraction of arriving late to his watch and getting on the bad side of a cranky superior officer, Yon was arrested and locked in the infamous, quote, Blue Tower, unquote, jail and summarily sentenced to death by hanging. Despite the direness of his situation, the remarkable Icelander did not panic or lose hope. His friends brought him food and drink, promising to help him get a reprieve. When the king caught word of Yon's death sentence, he immediately pardoned him and personally saw to the release, saying with a smile, quote, Look better after yourself, dear Yon. Unquote. The next time King Christian and Yon would meet would be in more dire straits. As a well-trained naval gunner, young Jon Olofsson was serving on board a Royal Danish-Norwegian Navy vessel during a military conflict between the kingdoms of Denmark and Sweden. It was the early 17th century, and the major European powers were more or less constantly fighting for the upper hand in trade and hegemony. King Christian IV of Denmark, who was always longing for a measure of action, often followed his warships into war, despite the risk to his safety. The skirmish with the Swedes was raging, and both sides suffered enormous casualties. After a harrowing attack that left their ships in tatters, the Danes were clearly on the verge of defeat and duly attempted to surrender. The enraged Swedes refused to acknowledge the détente and advanced hard. They wanted nothing less than to capture or kill the meddlesome Danish king. Many of the Danish soldiers were dead or wounded, including the king's personal guard, leaving the king alone and vulnerable on his damaged warship. After the worst of the battle, few of the oil lamps aboard remained intact, and the interior of the ship was dim and disorienting. With his gunpowder spent, Jon's cannons were at last silent. Jon could hear a small number of Swedish marines attempting to board the Danish warship, no doubt searching for officers or naval intelligence. Recognizing the direness of the situation, Jon desperately rushed to find the king, pledging to protect him with his life. He found the king alone, but in a defiant mood. Suddenly, a Swedish soldier surprised them and slashed at the king with his sword hitting him on the side of the head and injuring his ear. His head was bleeding profusely, and the shocked king fainted, 
falling on his side to the floor. The Swedish soldier cursed at the darkness and stabbed and swung his sword about the cabin in search of his royal quarry. Jon saw an opportunity to turn the tables on the Swede. He jumped to his feet from the shadows and with his remaining strength thrust his sword through the soldier's chest, hearing his last ragged breaths and pitiable gasps as he died in the dim light. When all was at last quiet, Jon grabbed hold of the unconscious king and hauled him away to a safer place. Jon stayed with the king until he himself passed out, exhausted and wounded from the fray. In the chaos of the battle, the damaged Danish ship took the Swedes by surprise and silently withdrew to safety. After this dramatic episode, it was said that the king held his Icelandic gunner in high esteem, for which Jon would later be very thankful. Christian IV was the king of Denmark and Norway from the age of about 11 until his death at age 71 in 1648. Contemporaries described him as above average height, most often dressed in the French fashion, and a true warrior by nature. In many respects, Christian was a typical Renaissance king, known as a plucky, hard-drinking man of grim wit and vision. After fires destroyed major parts of the capital city, the king modernized Copenhagen with fine brick and stone buildings in the Dutch Renaissance style. During his long reign, Christian energetically promoted shipping and trade while founding several overseas colonies. Christian built modern fortresses and factories while overseeing the expansion of the Royal Navy from 22 to 60 vessels. His domestic reforms brought about a level of stability and wealth to the Danish kingdom that was virtually unmatched anywhere else in Europe. Nevertheless, towards the end of his reign, the Danish king was a broken man. Christian's personal obsession with evil spirits and witchcraft led to numerous brutal public executions throughout his kingdom, including 21 Icelanders who were drowned or decapitated for ostensibly practicing witchcraft. Denmark had fought two unsuccessful wars against Sweden, but Christian brought true disaster upon his kingdom by leading Denmark into the Thirty Years' War, one of the longest and most destructive conflicts in European history that drained the crown's coffers, undermined the economy, and cost the kingdom large swaths of territory. As a result, absolute monarchy was at last abolished and the king was forced to share power with parliament. Following the success of the Portuguese and Dutch colonies in India, Christian IV sent a delegation to the subcontinent in 1618 with the goal of founding a military outpost and a lucrative trading colony in India. Imported spices such as cinnamon, nutmeg, and pepper would fetch ten times their cost in India. After two years of negotiations with the local ruler, a trade agreement with the Danish East India Company was established and Denmark's first colony in southern India was officially founded in late 1620. When Jon was offered to serve as an artilleryman for a two-year stint in the Indian colony, he jumped at the opportunity. Danes, Norwegian, Dutch, and Icelanders made up the crew and passengers, some of whom had never been to sea. Before they embarked, there was dancing and singing among some passengers, while others were weeping inconsolably. 
In addition to the ship's crew, there were administrators, diplomats, merchants, barbers, priests, carpenters, sailmakers, and soldiers like Jon aboard. The 16-week journey took the fleet of four Danish warships down the Atlantic coast of Africa, around the Cape of Good Hope to the Indian Ocean, making resupply stops in the Comoros Islands, in Madagascar, then in Sri Lanka, before finally finishing their journey in the southern Indian town of Trankabar, where the Danish fortress of Dansborg had recently been erected. While the trip had been relatively uneventful and Jon remained in good health, many had died on the voyage, including a fellow Icelander and close friend of Jon's. Scurvy, due to poor nutrition, diseases such as dysentery and accidents killed up to 15% of the crew and passengers. But this loss was considered acceptable at the time. During a stop in the Comoros Islands, Jon came across unfamiliar but delicious fruit. Quote, But no fruit was ripe at that time of the year except pomerans and bonanzers, of which the natives took a few bunches. These grew in their fruit gardens, 30 or 40 together. They are about the size of a guillemot, hung up to dry, and are especially good fruit. Refreshing and of good taste, as if there was fat in it, they are also excellent to eat on bread. While wandering the outskirts of Trankabar, India, on a day of leave from their duties, Yon and his mates encountered a massive cobra that terrified a local village and gave Yon an opportunity to demonstrate his courage. Quote, The beast was three-colored, black, white, and gray. The sting or bite of this kind of serpent is so poisonous that few survive it. Unquote. A king cobra, such as this one, can grow up to nearly six meters or 18 feet in length and is the world's largest venomous snake. Seven crew members engaged and fought the giant snake. Quote, his movements were both swift and fierce, and dire injury would be all but certain if he managed to strike us, either by his poison breath or by the point near the end of his tongue, with which he stings many a man to death. Unquote. After most of his friends gave up or ran away from the fight, Yon found himself entirely alone in pursuit of the mighty beast. Quote, My blood was up. I was entirely set on overcoming the serpent, if God would grant me victory, unquote. The giant of a cobra first attempted to evade Yon, quote, He fled into a large bush, forcing his way into it so violently that the whole thicket trembled and shook, as did the earth under our feet. Suddenly, he rose and came straight for me, fiercely and at great speed, raising his head high above the ground while his tail rattled ominously. The huge snake was raging against me with so much hissing and puffing so that it seemed as if there was blue smoke all around him. I was not terrified either of the massive snake nor of his cruel look, but my comrades cried aloud and were sorely frightened. I brandished my broadsword with the strength of my two arms so mightily that the others were surprised. Just then, the serpent prepared to strike me, so I hewed at him with all the force that God had given me. 
I was about two paces from his head, which I cut clean off with one fell swoop. Unquote. Although vanquished, Yon thought the beheaded King Cobra might still represent a threat. Quote, I stepped at once between the two pieces of the serpent so that it should not join together again, about which the Indians had warned me. Unquote. After 14 months of military service in India, Yon's tour of duty was completed, and he boarded the Danish naval frigate, the Pearl, in the autumn of 1624 for what would be a terrible journey back to Denmark. When the cannon he was loaded unexpectedly exploded, blasting him off the deck of the ship, he was badly injured. Artillerymen in this time were often killed through such accidents, but Yon miraculously survived despite being nearly drowned, scorched by the gunpowder over much of his abdomen and losing several fingers on both hands. In the sickbay, the barber who served as a surgeon wanted to bleed Yon, which at the time was believed to be the standard treatment for all such ailments. But he was already hemorrhaging so much blood that it was deemed unnecessary. Yon wisely refused to let six men sit on top of him, also a standard procedure, during the amputation of two more fingers. Despite poor hygiene and absurd theories about healing, after nine weeks on his back, Yon was able to stand, and five weeks after that, he was more or less recovered, although his injuries would prevent him from ever serving as an artilleryman again. Unfortunately, this tragic episode for Yon was merely the beginning of the crew's troubles. Once the Pearl passed the Cape and reached the Atlantic, she encountered fierce storms and unusually rough seas that lasted for 12 weeks. Treacherous storms flooded the ship and ruined much of their food supplies. Fresh water quickly became scarce. Any shipmate caught stealing water would suffer the death penalty. As their hunger worsened, the cook suggested that they eat the ship's cat, but too many balked at the idea. Violent gales and powerful storms broke off two of the ship's three masts and her rudder. As the Pearl mostly drifted northward, the slowly starving crew began to fall ill and die. After months of agony, the crew of the stricken warship at last spotted the south coast of Ireland and were towed into harbor. The captain and half the crew had perished, but Yon somehow pulled through. The Danish warship was repaired and resupplied over the coming weeks while the surviving crew of the Pearl recovered. Back in Copenhagen, Jon was offered a teaching position at the Danish Naval College, but politely declined. At Jon's request, he was duly given a farm in the West Fjords free of charge for his long and loyal service to the king. For the globe-trotting Icelander, it was time to return to his homeland and start a family. After 11 years of adventure abroad, Jon Olsen, at 34 years of age, soon became very popular in Iceland. Word of his fantastic experience traveled from farm to farm, and Jon was welcome everywhere. Some called Jon the, quote, Icelandic Marco Polo, unquote. Dignitaries invited him for banquets and festivals. Icelandic chieftains were eager to bring the renowned storyteller to their farms for lavish meals. Jon was eloquent and funny. His wondrous travel stories captivated young and old alike. 
With an excellent memory and attention to detail, Yon was always happy to regale his eager audiences, large and small, with his exotic tales, and he was never afraid to stretch the truth if it pleased his listeners. When he showed up to a speaking engagement with two monkeys that had recently been brought to Iceland by another traveler, it is hard to believe that he managed to keep a straight face as he explained to the astonished locals that the monkeys were actually an Indian prince and princess on a royal visit and that Yon could act as their interpreter. Yon is best known today for the autobiography and travelogue he wrote with the help of his son in 1661 at the age of 67. His descriptions of city life in England and Denmark, as well as the sights and people of Africa and India, were remarkably vivid. He was an excellent observer and able to accurately describe the daily life of ordinary people. Yon's tone is reasonable and with little prejudice. The narrative is lively and fascinating in comparison to what some might think are rather boring Icelandic sagas, which along with the Bible, every Icelander knew well. Fond of terrifying his audiences, Jón paid close attention to what people wanted to hear and would adjust his stories to maximize their appeal. His book became so popular and widely read that it passed from person to person for centuries in numerous handwritten copies until it was finally published in print in 1908. Since then, it has been translated into Danish, German, and English, and is considered a remarkable source of human life and events in Northern Europe and South India in the 17th century. Quote, But I will tell anyone who will heed it, that every single man who undertakes such journeys and has neither kinsmen on board, nor money, nor powerful friends, must have three good qualities, namely, gentleness, and an even temper towards officers and others who are worthy of it. Secondly, willingness, so that he does not wait to act until he is bidden. Thirdly, he must suffer hard times without complaint, yet must know his limits and must defend himself with honor, manliness, and understanding. The sum of it all is to act and behave honorably in word and deed, so that he need never fear answering boldly, for himself. Well, thank you so much as always for sharing the fascinating tale today, Frank. That was um, a lot of fun to share it. It was also very interesting learning about this fascinating individual. So of course, uh, this tale is historical. and you know this is a problem that we kind of face with a lot of the Icelandic sagas, for instance, is that, you know, I mean, maybe to just put it crudely, like how much of it is fiction and how much of it is fact. Um, and, you know, I mean, certainly the Icelandic sagas, for instance, are narrating real historical events and they do have this connection to the past. And yet they are also stories and there are narrative devices at play. There are certain you know, certain things are emphasized, that certain things are de-emphasized. And, you know, I think the the proper word, right, for Yon's tale would be picaresque, 
right? And it's this kind of style of literature that was uh, really dominant in, you know, I mean, I think we start kind of seeing examples of this in like the late 16th century up into the middle to late 18th century. You know, I mean, some some really early modern novels that have very picaresque elements in them would be things, for instance, like Don Quixote and uh, Stern, Stern's um, Tristram Shandy, mm -hmm. for instance. And, you know, so the kind of defining feature of these stories are you know, these kind of very disjointed adventure narratives where you follow around uh, an adventurer. It's usually some sort of rascal or kind of scoundrel figure. Um, I think this is kind of one of the things that's interesting about Yon is that, you know, I mean, he's very much, uh, he's the good guy, right? I mean, like these aren't so much the adventures of a rapscallion <laughs> uh, so much. <laughs> he, he certainly presents himself as uh, a venerable man, but what is maybe most surprising if you are going to fictionalize an account why would you put in the parts that make you look bad mm. because he shows yeah i came to work late and that is a death offense uh, he also relates which i didn't write in the story um, how he gets into fights uh, at pubs and ones which involve a lot of physical violence which it's pretty clear that if he'd been trying to make it a pretty story, he probably would have admitted. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the other way to think of this is that unlike Don Quixote, which is from a similar time period, this is considered a travelogue, first and foremost. Yeah. And it was the beginning of a period when Europeans were looking at things like the Odyssey and um, a lot of other stories and really, really enjoying them. So, well, I think it's also really interesting how when he returns to Iceland, he gets this reputation as the local Marco Polo, yeah. which then, of course, implies a familiarity with the story. And, yeah. you know, I mean, of course, we know about the long-standing tradition of manuscript production. And of course, you know, just literacy is something that really made Jon stand out on the continent uh, in a world where this was not yet common. Um, you know, so I mean, I think it's also interesting to think of Icelanders, yeah, I mean, reading stories like Marco Polo, for instance, and, you know, they did actually have access to some of these things that were written down. Uh, it wasn't just the Icelandic sagas and law texts and the Bible. Mm -hmm. um, uh, one thing I'd like to um, emphasize is that a lot of this was done without written sources. Mm. People would often, it, it's difficult for us to imagine, but it was as if people would go out of their way to develop an amazing memory and then memorize the stories and then learn how to recount them. And as they recount them, to respond to their audiences, to know what parts to emphasize, which parts to omit, and then to repeat and do it night after night. And the people who could do this well were highly prized in um, small farming communities and, yeah. and, and like Yon, were known to travel from place to place and live off of their ability to, to um, spin a good yarn. So, you know, like it's always a little bit of a dead end to ask this question because there's only so much that we can know, you know, which parts of this are capital T true and which parts of this uh, are, you know, fictionalized. But, you know, 
to to kind of accept this completely as a story is one thing. Uh, but I mean, I will certainly say that I raised my eyebrows a little bit um, with the episode with saving the king, because that's certainly a very nice story to be able to tell afterwards. What yeah. do you make of that? I I think that there probably is um, some fact in it. I I suspect it's a little less dramatic. Uh, I think it may be that he and the king survived and that there was fighting, but how much he was involved in it and so forth is, is very difficult to judge. It's quite possible that somebody came after the king and he happened to be there and was able to you know, kill him in the dark. That doesn't sound uh, completely fantastical, but we do know factually that the king was impressed enough with Yon to grant him this farm that he mm. retired to. Oh. And that was not something that the average Icelander was given at the end of um, concluding military service. I think also the fact that he uh, is clearly, uh, he's got an incredible endurance and ability to survive, not just very painful and horrible situations, but to do so with a certain amount of self-confidence and hope which I think a lot of people looked up to. So it's easy to see how he made friends and was able to gain the respect of his superiors. Yeah, definitely. Uh, there's also another little interesting historical episode that takes place in the background of this story, uh, which is known sometimes as the slaying of the Spaniards. Uh, what can you kind of tell us about that? Well, luckily I will be recounting that in um, one of the future podcasts because oh, okay. we have a story that I wrote about it. Um, it's called the the Basque Whalers Tragedy, um, and as we talked about it in there, uh, there were thirty one Basque sailors, actually Spanish and Basque, who had been shipwrecked here in Iceland, and were understandably cold and hungry, and they raided one absent farmer's fish stalks that he had drying and ate that and that was enough to get the death sentence for all of the remaining survivors and 31 of these men were brutally killed including the captain who was only I think 23 years old or something like that um, and I look forward to describing that in detail but it's a, it's a horrible horrible story and I remember when I first was told it by an Icelander I hardly believed it because I had thought that Icelanders were simply different and and a little less violent than, and they'd left off that from the Viking Age. Well, I mean, of course, uh, one does have to imagine that, um, of course, in a country of scarcity like pre-modern Iceland, I mean, stealing somebody's fish stock is also a death sentence for that farmer. Uh, so, I mean, it makes sense that um, severity in cases like that would be the norm. Um, but, you know, there is also this kind of interesting quirk, you know, like one of these instances of a very old law never officially making it off the books. Uh, don't quote me on this, but I mean, I think that it was only in the last 10 years or something yeah. that uh, there was a law that was officially repealed. You know, it's something to the effect of um, groups of Basque sailors may be killed at will or yeah. something to that effect. Yeah, in fact, it was considered <laughs> the duty of the Icelanders to, to kill them if they encountered them. And when it was uh, finally um, overturned as a rule, um, the Spanish ambassador and a couple of other representatives of even, I think, some survivors, uh, some descendants of, of the survivors of the, of the Basque whaling wreck um, 
came over and celebrated it. So it was a, it was kind of a, a, a sad but also a really wonderful moment that, yes, at least we don't have this. I think we need to put it in the context of what was going on. This is only within 100 years of the Protestant Reformation, and a couple of things we can see got very much more intense. And this happened in Denmark and in England. In the case of James I and also in the case of Christian IV, they were both highly suspicious and even fearful of witchcraft. This was something that spread through the Western world, including the American colonies, like wildfire, and unfortunately resulted in what we know as the Salem Witch Trial in America, mm. and several similar events in, in Denmark, all over England, and Iceland too. So these were an offshoot of this hardening and um, much more strict rules uh, in civil society. Previously, these had been ecclesiastic rules or things related to the church, and now these were suddenly rules of the state, and they were extremely harsh. Uh, another one to give an example of is any form of adultery was punishable by death. Mm. And there were many people in the 17th century, men and women, uh, in, in one very sad case, there was a, a young woman, I think she was 15 years old, she was raped, and she got pregnant, and for that sin, she was put to death. Yep. So I think it's, uh, it's difficult to reconcile the good parts of this time period, the 17th century, with the utter horror of um, how people were exploited and punished and tortured and killed, but that's the reality. Yeah, I mean, to also just stick briefly with uh, this interesting sustained contact between like Basque fishermen and whalers and Icelanders. I mean, one, uh, it's just a very interesting uh, interaction, I think. You know, I mean, both of these are just very interesting languages. Uh, Basque being a non-Indo-European language whose origin is ultimately lost to time, uh, you know, pr presumably going back to like a pre-Indo-European substrate in Europe. Um, and so there's this really interesting thing, though, that's kind of been uh, uncovered, I guess, which is uh, sometimes referred to as Basque Icelandic pigeon. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, these Basque sailors in sailing all around the world in northern Europe, um, you know, like kind of developed a lingua franca for dealing with northern Europeans, basically. And so there are these elements of... Germanic, like Dutch, uh, romance words in it. Uh, as far as I understand, uh, it is not actually an, Ice an Icelandic Basque pigeon, as in it's not a hybrid of these two languages, but it was recorded in manuscripts in the West Fjords, which is really interesting, I think. Mm. There's, uh, in fact, two extant uh, copies of uh, independently made glossaries or phrase books and um, I got a chance to look at one of these, and it is fascinating. You can see, just as you say, that there are, it's not simply Basque words, but there, like, for example, one word that stood out to me was biscuit for mm. some kind of a cookie or something like that, which clearly is not coming from Basque itself, but that was one of the words they used. And um, the, the words for counting were similar to ones you'd see in Dutch or German. Oh. So they were kind of, it was like ein, twee, three, one, two, three, that sort of thing, and hondert and stuff. Kind of like a North Atlantic lingua franca. Yeah, yeah, yeah very much. Uh, and it's it's fascinating that, 
you can see from the vocabulary, I think that in the glossary I looked at, there were 500 words, something like that. Uh, in all of those words, you get a very clear idea of what life must be like, because a lot of it is like, will you trade those leather trousers <laughs> for this cotton shirt? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and uh, it, they would have words to communicate like that, so they could say yes, no, up, down, high, low. Uh, but otherwise, I mean, you could see how with a very limited pigeon, you could actually accomplish quite a great deal. And it's fascinating that, that we still have records of that. Yeah, I mean, actually, uh, just a quick recommendation for anyone interested in this kind of stuff. I don't think this comes up in there specifically, uh, but yeah, there was this really great uh, nonfiction writer, uh, Mark Kurlansky, uh, who's written uh, both about just the history of salt uh, yeah. and its importance uh, in just food and uh, world economy and cod. And then also, I believe it's just called the Basque history of the mm -hmm. world. Uh, yeah. And it really kind of brings some of these topics together in interesting ways that also intersect with Icelandic history very often. Yeah, great books. And I think also it's, um, it's sort of interesting to think about uh, just for a moment, the Basque as a people, as you said, they are not related to um, their neighbors, uh, to the, to the north in France and to the south and west in um, in Spain, but uh, they're completely independent. And in a similar way, Icelanders are. Mm. So we are, or Icelanders are few, and they have their own particular language. And I think that that probably allowed them to, to a certain extent, when they weren't killing and torturing one another, to... <laughs> to understand each other in a basic way. Like they could see, aha, it makes sense to use some English and German words because that's something that both of them were familiar with to a certain extent, and that helped them build up their vocabulary. Um, the other thing to think about is how much communication or trade there was. And this is what we know. The Basque would come starting in the late 1500s because they had already been since the high Middle Ages, 200 years before, been hunting whale off the coast of Spain and France. They went as far a um, hundred years before coming to Iceland to Ireland, and they were able to hunt whales there. Finally, they made their way up in the late 16th century, early 17th century to um, Iceland and realized that the areas around the West Fjords were by far the most productive in terms of um, acquiring whales and all the products that can be made from them. So when you get a full whale, it's a large, large thing, and you need to somehow compartmentalize it and make it more sellable. And this is where the Basque and the Spanish in general cleverly used the local population because mm. the people had often more than enough time to spare and they could get paid in wares that were highly valuable in Iceland, but just common uh, quotidian uh, products in, in Spain at the time, such as uh, coffee or tobacco or something like that. And the Icelanders were wild about it. So working for foreigners became a very, very positive thing. Of course, this is completely illegal. And the way the people would basically justify it was the way Yon did when he was speaking to the king, saying, hey, we have a trade monopoly, which means that we get crappy products if we get them at all, and they cost too much. And then we have these nice foreigners who come in, and if it weren't for them, we would starve to death. Yep. And that's exactly the argument that Yon made. And it was actually, interestingly enough, um, not long after the Laki eruption in 1783-84, that the Danes finally rescinded the trade monopoly, which caused so much suffering for 
well over 150 years in Iceland. Yeah, I mean, also to just jump around a little bit, but, um, you know, something that's a little bit unfortunate to me is a certain kind of motivated reasoning that we see um, with activists against whaling. And, you know, there are plenty of good ethical and environmental reasons to oppose whaling, but something that I see um, said very often is that whaling actually isn't an Icelandic tradition and that it's actually quite modern and that Iceland has essentially not practiced whaling. I mean, basically since 1948 and the, in, and, 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 and the founding of Kvalud, uh, the, the only company to this day to whale in Iceland. Um, and, you know, yes, it is the case that Iceland did not have a kind of native whaling economy in the sense that other nations developed. Uh, they lacked uh, the large kind of long-range ships for that. Um, and yet, I mean, it is undeniably the case that whaling did play important parts in local economies. And, you know, there would have been a lot of cooperation between native communities and foreign whalers who set up whaling camps. And this would have brought in, you know, uh, a lot of trade as well. And so, you know, I mean, to me it is you know, like we can recognize that whaling did play an important role in Icelandic history and still move past it, right? I think I think that's a, a good point. I mean, one of the main products that was derived from whales, which people really sought value in, was um, the oil, which be, could be used for illumination hmm. and um, also as a, as a fuel in general for heating. Um, one has to remember that in Iceland, there's always been a shortage of fuel, that, apart from geothermal. Uh, or hydro, but n back then they had no way to properly exploit those things. And so getting the natural resources from whales was a relatively affordable uh, way to, to get materials that otherwise one would never see. So it, it's very easy to understand why Icelanders, despite the trade ban, were eager to uh, make contact with these foreigners and offer their services and see what they could trade because this could be, you know, making a huge difference in their quality of living. Uh, so we've kind of briefly talked about some of the more horrible aspects of this time period that maybe need a little bit of recontextualization. And it seems to me that a similar episode uh, is that which concerns the monkeys that were uh, brought uh back, right? Uh, so, you know, I mean, obviously to modern sensibilities, like there's something inherently pretty distasteful about this, right? Mm, yes. I think the, um, the humor in it, though, is undeniable, and one has to put things in the context of time. So this was a time when people really believed in sea monsters, they really believed in supernatural spirits and all kinds of amazing things. So when Jón comes to a group of relatively naive Icelanders and he says, oh, this monkey is actually a kind of a person. They just come from this faraway place called India. It had a bit of realism to it um, because people imagined that the people were different. They'd never seen them before. Mm -hmm. So, And then Jón saying with a straight face, um, yeah, I can interpret for you. And they're, of course, squeaking and squawking. I think, in a way, it was Yon making fun of the people's ignorance 
and they're naive. Yeah, I mean, of course, he had been to India and he had had his own adventures and seen the people there. So, you know, I mean, in some sense, he is just kind of playing a trick on his yeah. rube yeah. Uh, neighbors. Yeah. And, and he was showing, I, I mean, it's kind of an old trick. He's like, look how sophisticated I am yeah. that yeah. I can fool all you people with this sort of thing. But it's, um, I think we live in very sensitive times, which is important. It's uh, part of our cultural development. And I can see why some people would take issue with um, a joke like that, although we have to, I, I think, put it in historical context and understand that this is not something that maybe would be appropriate to do in this day and age, but at that time period it was, um, uh, I think, undeniably a funny trick. I mentioned this earlier, but I think it's uh, worth repeating because uh, I think it's a pretty interesting linguistic note. Uh, but so the native Germanic word for monkey, uh, which in English is realized as ape and in Icelandic api, and I mean, for instance, in German afa, uh, this can actually be traced back to Proto-Germanic and it's not a loan word. Uh, and so this implies that yeah, at some point in the Bronze and Iron Age in Northern Europe, Southern Denmark, somewhere, that there were people who knew what monkeys were in a place where monkeys do not natively occur. So whether through trade uh, or the Roman Empire or just stories, um, there was some sort of awareness that these creatures existed. And uh, there is actually uh, a lake in Iceland called Apavat. Yeah. Uh, which is a native name, uh, which I think is just very, very kind of strange and curious. Yeah, there's a, there's a couple of <laughs> ones like that. The word strutur in Icelandic means ostrich. Mm. And there's a number of things called struturvat and, yeah. and so forth. And I've asked more experienced people why this could be. Were they actually talking about ostriches? And it was explained to me that no, that was an unrelated word uh, that that just happened to mean to be the same word as the word for ostrich. I'd like to believe that it's ostrich. <laughs> but uh, there's also, it, it's sort of interesting in the um, the summer house I used to own is a play, place called Litla Galstadaler, which means the little uh, valley, or little, how would you translate it? Basically, Galstur is um, a male pig. Mm. or um, And... Um, the interesting thing is that by the 14th century, there were no pigs left in Iceland. Mm. Uh, and it wasn't yeah. until something like, I think, the 19th century that they were introduced, which means that when you see something that's talking about svin, svinadalur, svinavat, or something like that, or galta, these are words that are clearly coming from before the 14th century and uh, show how the diet of Icelanders must have changed over time as pigs suddenly were no longer available. Uh, so finally, um, this is available in modern translation, right? Uh, so people can actually read your own story if they want to, right? Yeah, it's it's uh, not easy. The copy that I got was um, over 100 years old. <laughs> yeah, it's not exactly like in a popular Penguin paperback edition. <laughs> no, and uh, I also uh, would like to say that I went through um, a very interesting uh group of sources it was a number of historians discussing the novel in a three-part show which was over two hours long and i managed to glean a lot of information that i could not have probably otherwise come up with myself mm. um, and uh, there there's just a, a tremendous amount of research uh, in modern times about 
this man and his life and how he lived and trying to answer some of the questions that you were asking, which is how much credence can we put to this or is this more or less all nonsense? And I think the conclusion was that the most valuable thing about this is that it tells about normal people living normal lives in a time which for us is like a foreign country and just we can hardly imagine it. Um, and if we look too much into the exact details of, you know, how big the cobra was or, or sure. like, was yeah. he actually sentenced to death? Uh, I think that those things fall by the wayside and, and are, are less important. It's more his life in general and what we learn from his uh, experiences. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you so much as always, Frank. Thank you. It was a real pleasure talking to you. Deep North is the official podcast of Iceland Review, the oldest continuously running English language publication on Iceland, covering community, nature, and culture. If you enjoyed listening, please consider subscribing to Iceland Review at our website.